Welcome to the 12 Days of Edition Wars. In this year's series, we will be taking a deep dive into the things that we love about this game, D&D, and, well, actually, some other RPGs, too. And we're talking about why we love them and why maybe you should try them. On this, the 11th day of the 12 Days of Edition Wars, my DM gave to me a list of games that my buddy Brandis and I have played, and maybe we think you should try, too. I, of course, am Sam Dillon, and I am here with Brandis. How are you tonight, sir? I'm well, thank you. Uh, excited to be here, as always. Yeah, good. Me too. So, Brandis, do you have a list of games that you've played that you think others should play? Can you narrow it down to three is actually the question. So, I have I have a, a ton of games that I love. Mm-hmm. Um and you know this is a, a D&D podcast but even though D&D in its many editions has always been my main game it, it's really never been my only game um aside from the the first several years where i didn't even have a group i had you know individual friends i was playing D&D with so branching out was not even conceivable right, right? Uh, but also it was the mid nineties and just finding out about products was a, well, almost impossible, right? You either mm-hmm. knew or you didn't, and that was it. Right. But I couldn't just drive myself to the mall either. I was, I was 12. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So um, I don't know that I have these in a, a ranked order, mm-hmm. um, but um, I, I will definitely go quickly through the ones that I mentioned yesterday as um, no, seriously, you, you should, you should try these out. If you like this kind of thing at all, um, I would recommend the very, very rules light over the edge to anyone to try it at least once, just seeing what rules light can be like where the entirety of the rules can probably fit on an index card. That's, that's a really interesting experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and character sheets really are an index card, an index card where most of the space is still blank, right? And, yeah. and that's all fine. Then uh, I also mentioned um, Mage of the Awakening. Um, a lot of our audience will have tried uh, World of Darkness and or Chronicles of Darkness at some point. Um, not everyone, but, y- you know, they got really big and popular for a reason. Um, Mage is sort of famously one of the ones that's harder to run because the, the player capabilities are so big and weird as they uh, gain power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Their ability to gather information becomes almost unlimited, that kind of thing. So I, I still think that, you know, that's something really good to give a shot, especially if you like occult weirdness, right? Right. Yep. I mean, over the edge is also occult conspiracy weirdness. And so that's mm-hmm. a lot of fun to me. That's the kind of thing I love. Right. Um, when it isn't specifically D and D that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So I guess I want to start just by getting those out of the way so that uh, I'm not just repeating myself to our audience. Mm-hmm. online. Mm-hmm. Uh, so why don't you go ahead and, list 20 years. So I actually uh, should probably do the same thing. So I I will recommend to everyone that they play Savage Worlds. 
And Savage Worlds is actually a game kit, right? It's a kit. It's a it's a generic RPG kit that you can make whatever you want with. But there are various settings and games that are Savage Worlds games. So uh I mentioned um, you know, East Texas University yesterday. That is a Savage Worlds game. It's a setting in Savage Worlds that uses a horror genre motif to, you know, set your game in, right? Uh there's also Deadlands, which is um you know, Wild West, uh, shortly after the uh, Civil War, except there are zombies and weird stuff happened. Uh, there is Dead Net- Deadlands Noir, which is 1930s New Orleans. You're a private investigator investigating murders and that sort of thing. Um, and all of those are Savage Worlds games. And there's a whole bunch of other ones. Uh, yeah. There's Rippers, where you're, you know, it's Jack the Ripper age london role-playing there's a slipstream where you're kind of like sliders you're going from one area to another through a particular type of basic wormhole there's um well there's a whole bunch there's there's a whole bunch if you go to pinnacle games website you, you get you get the whole list of everything they do um the three i have played are deadlands deadlands noir and east texas university and the thing about the system is that uh, it's fat. It, their their sort of tagline is fast, furious, and fun, and that's what it aims for. It aims for very quick, pulpy. You know, you're good at some things, you're not good at other things. Let's just go through it, and here we are. And and it's fun. It it does succeed in in the in the versions of Savage Worlds I've played or in the settings that I've played. It succeeds in being fast, furious, and fun. As long as everybody has buy in that that's the goal is fast, furious, and fun, then you're then you're golden. And I suggest people play it because it's not a D20 game. Yep. It's not a game that relies on six basic attributes and you roll a D20 and you add a modifier. No, it does have attributes, but those attributes depend on which setting you're in mostly. And they are different dice sizes, right? right? And then the different actions that you have and the different talents that you have and abilities that you have are based on the setting and the type of character that you're creating. And you will roll a certain... Uh, die type to determine if you succeed at that or not. Um, it's definitely not a D20 game. And if there's anything that I suggest, if if you take nothing else from this from this um, podcast episode, it's that you should play a non D20 game if all you've ever done is play a D20 game. Sure. So my my one experience with Savage Worlds was a, a, a one shot, mm-hmm. and uh, something went sort of off with the difficulty of the encounter we we, we the, the big climactic encounter and so we wound up so reliant on the trick mechanic i think it is that the encounter and thus kind of the session fell a little mm-hmm. flat yeah but uh I, I have an easy time believing that things could go some other way mm-hmm. right and that uh other specific games within savage worlds could uh not run into that problem. I, I know that's very popular with a lot of people. I have friends who have written for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it and it's not. It's uh, the thing I like about it. The reason why I keep I, I push on that fast, furious, fun thing is there really aren't that many rules, 
right? Now, in a setting that you use, it's going to have all these sort of modules that are put on top of it to frame the setting and the genre and the goals of the type of story that you want to tell. And that's what determines, you know, the list of flaws and abilities and that sort of thing that you have available to you. Um, you know, but that's really just to make sure that, okay, if you're playing a sci-fi in a sci-fi setting, you're not using, you know, daggers and maces and casting spells, right? Um, the rules themselves are are actually, it, the book is not that long, right? Like, it, it's a few pages, right? Um, it's all the other setting fluff that you put around it that helps you build the characters and whatnot that you need. And so my only point in saying that is, uh, there are settings where they have extra add-on modules where, for example, Deadlands has a fear mechanic, right? And um, that fear mechanic actually plays a pretty strong role in encounters that you get into if the DM ignores the fear mechanic, right? So um, the if you ignore the fear mechanic, you have to set up an encounter very different from not ignoring the fear mechanic, right? Mm -hmm. And if that's something that's not understood, it could make things go sideways real fast. They either become so easy as to be, you know, why did, why did this even, why this wasn't fun because it was, it had like no impact or so difficult, like what you're talking about, where it seems like everything's reliant on one single thing. And that's the only thing we can seem to do that actually has an effect, but that's really boring, right? Like that's not the goal of, Right. So, so there are, there probably, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know exactly what, which mechanic you're talking about, but that definitely rings true to me as something that could happen for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But ultimately, the rules are very simple and they're not D20. So you have to sort of wrap your mind around them differently. So, right. And like games that, games where you build a die pool of various die sizes, mm -hmm. that's also very much the, the cortex, uh, ethos mm -hmm. right um right yeah and um you know my, my issues with um a smallville uh one shot that we played in were not mm -hmm. really about the cortex rules as such right um but more about oh i don't like player versus player conflict at the table that mm -hmm. that makes me really unhappy when right. it's very heads up only one person can possibly get what they want and the other one probably is going to be out of the game mm -hmm. kind of conflict. Right. Um, that was, that was not for me. Right. Um, but uh, that isn't what Smallville has to be. That's what happened in that session. I, I just want to be clear about, yeah. about that. Is that the, that's the same, uh, that's a cortex, but it's basically the same construction as the leverage RPG, right? Uh, right. Uh, there's, there's a lot of different, games that are you know variations of of cortex and mm -hmm. generations of cortex right okay. um we have cortex prime um on uh, on our shelf and mm -hmm. have not sort of fully engaged to doing anything with it yet mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um we tried some stuff um and then scheduling sort of got in the way that's what happens when you're an adult with responsibilities you know uh, that's the truth yeah um so what's your second second on your list so um i'm gonna tell fans of DD who might be new to this thing um uh, if you haven't tried fourth edition DD, do so once at minimum um and 
since that's not really a non D&D game, obviously, uh, <laughs> this is really about, hey, you should try 4th edition D&D, but also try 13th Age. Mm-hmm. Uh, 13th Age is very much taking a page from uh, 4th edition and you know remixing things about it. And um, I really have had a great time with 13th Age. Um, the character dynamics are great. I like how backgrounds form kind of roll your own skills. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of different, you know, ways you can write your, your, your skill family into a background. Um, there was a brief time in D and D next where it looked like that might be their approach for skills. Mm-hmm. And that was going to be interesting. Right. Oh boy. Um, they, they obviously did not do that, but, um, <laughs> that can be a, a workable hack for, um, for, for 5e, if you're willing to like understand how that kind of a skill system works. Um, but, um, what I love most about 13th age is the centering of the campaign and the setting building around icons. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm a huge fan of of that and what that does and the relationship dice with, with icons that are supposed to like provide you with a benefit or a complication in play it can be a lot of fun. Well, so what's funny about that is that's very um, – and this is going to seem like an unrelated thing, but I mentioned in yesterday's episode, Star Wars Edge of the Empire. And one of the things that I, I like about that, now it got an honorable mention. It wasn't my, hey, here's the best setting ever. But um, the thing, one of the things I like about the game are the obligations. And mm-hmm. the funny thing about the obligations is they are very reminiscent of how the icons can influence things that are happening in an individual session. Yeah, absolutely. Because you make a role before the session to find out, okay, is anybody's obligation going to get, you know, pressed on, right? Is it going to become important in this session or at least possibly become important? And that's what those icon relationship roles are about in the beginning of sessions, right? Is, okay, well, is this going to be an important aspect of the game this week? Right. Um, and so those those it's interesting that those two things in very different games and in very different settings kind of speak to the same type of situation where during your prep or at the beginning of a session you want to make sure that you're pulling in the things that are important to the PCs and important to the setting and make those things you know intertwine together and that's going to make for an interesting game yeah 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 um uh, i definitely like the obligation mechanic from edge of empire Mm -hmm. i think that's very cool um i i definitely also struggle with getting my head around uh what if i need to rewrite my session plans on the fly because they didn't roll that till the start of the session right well so and that that's where that's where the the process falls down. Right. And that's why I said 
in prep, right? I snuck those words in, right? Because what right. I used to do when I ran Edge of the Empire was I didn't roll it at the beginning of the session. I rolled sure. it during my prep for that week right? so that I knew. And then I informed the player it, if it was necessary, right? Because mostly I play an open game, right? But right. Yeah. Like I think you could probably have a, a pretty good experience with just either like rolling in in email or online between sessions mm -hmm. or at the end of the session prior if you're a game with a consistent group right yeah but sometimes yeah so i mean and and so which whatever whatever kind of ebb and flow of information works for for different groups because i i know some uh gms who they roll obligation in secret during prep and oh, they don't sure. tell anybody and they just let it be a surprise to the players which works for that group and that's fine um i personally happened to the the campaign i ran i i just went ahead and rolled you know and told the players um but the idea though is is very similar right where you're trying to set something up and have it affect the session and that was that was a problem i did have in 13th age which was by which was why when i got to edge of the empire i knew okay i got to do something other than roll this right at the beginning of each session because when i would do 13th age that way it threw off some things right because it was like oh crap now i have to work that in and that might not have been the direction that we were necessarily going to go and that i prepped for yeah so yeah i i hear that i find i find it i find it very interesting actually that those two games which are so different have such a a similar sort of thing that brings together some elements that because i hadn't really thought about those two things until you were talking about 13th age and i was starting thinking about edge of the empire I, was, I hadn't really thought about those things as so similar but they actually very much are right and, and you see similar outcomes if not uh fundamental mechanics mm -hmm. in uh things like um Mage of the Awakening Second Edition, where you have aspirations and obsessions. Okay. It isn't that you roll to see what comes up; it's that the player tells you what they want to see come up. Mm -hmm. Nice, right? Um, and so they're they're hoping to see that see a chance to address this problem or question, so they can get you know beats toward experience points. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's that's the goal. Um, but I think that whole kind of thing uh, really got started with um, keys uh, mm -hmm. as an experience point mechanic. I want to say that it was the shadow of yesteryear and um, uh, Lady Blackbird that really kind of got that started in the indie space, but there's probably something, I'm actually it might be Sorcerer, Anyway, there, there's a lot of games in the indie space that I have read more about than actually read the text themselves. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to uh, express more knowledge than I remotely possess. So let's move on if you're if you're ready. Uh, yeah, yeah, um, right. So yesterday I talked about the the setting of Technoir. Uh Today mm -hmm. I want to talk about just go, just go play Techmore. Right, the the rules are very smooth flowing. Things move along very well. Um, there's a really good story justification for the different ways you can apply your, you know, your verbs to do different things. Um, I really really like 
what it does mechanically, but also it's, as I said this yesterday, its whole way of presenting content is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, like you should play this game, but if for some reason you're not going to play this game, read this game. Um, and it's really, really great for that. So that that's my that's my answer for this one. Um, absolutely, Technor. Um, and like it is, uh, it's cyberpunk. Uh, very much centered around um, investigation. Um, the thing that I struggled with that better gamers than me will not struggle with is that in the um, format of transmissions, uh, the GM doesn't decide on a mystery that has an answer. You sort out the answer um, more kind of procedurally from what the PCs decide to do. Uh, It is a way of making sure that the PCs can get to the end of the mystery Mm -hmm. without Mm -hmm. running into any dead ends. But it does mean that you are finding out along with the GM and your guesses as to the answer don't have a way to be right ahead of time. Right. Because there is no answer until you come to the answer. Mm-hmm. That was a real struggle for me, but that is me and how I think. As a player or a GM? As a player. Okay. Right. I haven't I haven't run this. I've only been a PC in this. Okay. Um, but I needed the GM to not tell me that there was no answer until we came to the answer. I had like it broke my interest in investigation to know that whatever you decide what, and what find we, is going to be the real yeah, answer. Yeah, whoever we happened yeah. to go ask was going to determine the answer. I I wasn't ready for that. Yeah. Right. Um, I actually have a friend who runs their D and D games that way. Um, not fifth edition, but I think he's still playing second, but, uh, but whenever there is a mystery or something that, that is specifically set up to be a mystery, right. He also does this basically with call of Cthulhu and that sort of game too. But, um, what he does is he figures out what the clues are. And he makes sure there's at least like two or three different ways that it could go, right? Uh, and then whatever the party ends up after they've gathered enough clues, right? When they decide, oh, we're going to go, you know, we think it's this person, we're going to go arrest them or take them to the sheriff or whatever. Um, they're right, like 99% of the time. Yeah. So he, he doesn't tell them ahead of time, though. He doesn't say, oh, whatever you pick, that's going to be the one. Like, and he doesn't. You know, sometimes we're not talking necessarily about one session either. We're talking about, you know, over time, there have been this preponderance of clues that could lead in, you know, whatever. So um, it's just really funny that you bring that up as that's part of the actual mechanical setup of that game, because uh, that was his solution to having a problem with, um, you know, uh, for example, in Call of Cthulhu, one of the problems with Call of Cthulhu, not that I want to talk about problems uh, about games, but... um, there are certain setups where if you miss a roll and it's yep. likely that you're going to miss it because, you know, percentage sense system, right? Um, 
you don't get a pivotal clue that you absolutely need in order to actually get the right answer to the mystery. Right. And, um, and you know, many games have tackled that problem in different right. ways. Yep. Whether Tra- it's Trail of Cthulhu. Right. That, that's actually on roll, my list, right? right is Trail of yeah. Cthulhu. Uh, and my experience with Trail of Cthulhu was very positive. Yeah. Um, I, I had very much the right GM for the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and we really enjoyed that. We didn't get to finish the adventure. Um, one's fault. It was just the, the same thing that uh, broke up a lot of our campaigns at that point was we all worked together at the same company. Everyone got laid off on the same day. And so people scattered all literally all across the country looking for new work in, in the industry or out of the industry. This is back when I was in video games. Um, and the lesson here is if you work in video games, don't put down roots. It will never help. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Trail of Cthulhu, the way it solves the problem is it, it has basically a system where you always are assured to get enough clues to solve the mystery. No matter what your roles are, no ma- there, there's no way to fail a role or botch a role in a particular scene and not get the information you need. Right. Um, which it, which is a direct response. It was written as a direct response to some issues in Call of Cthulhu. Now, right, absolutely. At, at Call of Cthulhu, I'm not trying to call it out as a bad game. It's a fantastic game. It's a wonderful game. But if you haven't GM'd it very much, and you're you can't think on your feet, or you ha- don't have a plan for, you know, how will they get enough information if they fail a bunch of rolls along the way? Uh, that can be a big, huge stumbling block. And so, um, yeah. So I also recommend Call of Cthulhu. Actually, that's on my list as well. Um, right. Just um, as a, it's a standard, you know, percentage system setup. It has some, you know, the the latest edition has some push mechanics and whatnot that let you press your luck, and uh, it it makes it so that you can maybe work around some of that accidentally failing and then ruining the whole adventure kind of idea. Yeah, um, I haven't played any of Cloth Cthulhu Seventh Edition, but I've been listening to an actual play podcast of COC Seventh for years now, years and years, and I really like what the push mechanic does, and um, also uh, the the death spiral of luck. Right, I, I like how all of those things come together to you know, create possibilities. But the other incredibly big thing that I see in Call of Cthulhu that uh, not every adventure writer in other games is doing is that they're laying out a lot more operational area, mm-hmm. a lot more space to explore. Right. Uh, and for you to find your own path to a conclusion, not the conclusion. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, necessarily then for example in a D&D adventure right mm-hmm. um, so you have all of these different things going on in a town and ideally they'll all kind of point you to an interesting outcome that the GM might have to sorry the the keeper of ancient lore the, the keeper has to you know help things toward with what the NPCs do in response and things like that. But at the same time, it means that um, there's a lot more room for 
difference in two playthroughs. Mm-hmm. Right. 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 And that's that's pretty great. Um, and also a lot of room for well, we missed that clue, but we found this other set of clues. We came to different conclusions, uh, and maybe that led to a different showdown at the end. But that's okay, actually. Right. Um, because I think in Call of Cthulhu, solving the mystery is almost antithetical to the the cosmic horror and uh, mystery of it all, mm-hmm. right? Um, do do you survive? No, no. At least not in any in any uh, mindful way that was is uh, normal. What you would consider normal. <laughs> And you know uh, there are going to, going to be ways to run the game where you can have a long campaign of multiple adventures and characters. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the characters survive, some of them get replaced. Whatever, it's great. Um, just I do really like what the Call of Cthulhu designers have have done to take some of the rough edges off of. Um, needing to hit certain skill checks to succeed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. While at the same time, as I was saying, I'm also a big fan of Trail of Cthulhu doing that thing of just, hey, um, if uh, if a die roll would break the whole thing, what if we didn't roll? What if it's right. just, if you just mm-hmm. work it out? Right. And uh, that's something I've tried to incorporate more mindfully into my D&D writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to be clear for the audience, Trail of Cthulhu doesn't just say, oh, well, don't roll. Just give it to them. It says you don't need to roll because you can have them exchange resources for that information. And that way they always have the ability to get that information. Right. And I think it's also uh, you're always guaranteed the core clues. Then there are additional clues and additional stuff that you get for spends. Right. So. Um, yeah, why don't you go ahead? So I, I really think that um, players who've only, again, I'm going back to the whole, if you've only ever played D20, you need to do some other stuff. Um, but I think that what you should include in that list of things that you play is Apocalypse World. And I know that people love fantasy and they want to think Dungeon World might be the way to go here, but Apocalypse World is the original apocalypse engine you know thing that people started making all these other types of games with and there's something to be said for going back to the initial paradigm that is involved in that game uh there is i don't want to call it controversy because i don't think it should rise up to controversy i think uh, it, the writing in Apocalypse World is off-putting for some people. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't give a crap about being nice or uh, or or not cussing or trying to not offend anyone. So the writing it for a lot of people is very much not like any experience they've had with an RPG before because it's written very differently. But there are so many good ideas in Apocalypse World. The idea of fronts 
and a time clock. Absolutely. And um and limiting a character's uh information onto a page, right? In, in terms of a playbook. Uh making sure that the the GM of whatever game you're playing is telling the truth, right? Like the agreement that the that the GM has with the players is you know, you're getting the unvarnished truth about the situation in game, and you always can trust that. Like those sorts of ideas and those sorts of things are at least worth reading this game. There are some questionable choices in it too, uh, including sex moves. Yep. Is is like what were you thinking? Uh, well, I mean, they they are trying to imagine a like uh dangerous but very horny future right right no i get it and and the but you know and the ideas of and you know the thing is like if they had named it anything else right Mm -hmm. it probably wouldn't have gotten as much backlash that particular thing uh because most most people i know at the time when they read about sex moves they're like I'm not playing that. I don't want sex in my game. Like that's not, I, I'm not RPGing for that. Like let's go back to D and D, you know? Um, and so I think for, for some that was too far. It was a too far, but the thing is that the move is not just about sex. It's not only to be used for sex. It's actually about intimate relationships. And that includes basic platonic ones as well. Um, but anyway, so, Here's the thing, though. Here's the thing. There's so many good ideas in the book that everyone should at least read it, if not play it or run it. And the way that it frames everything and the way that it produces the the feeling that you have at the end of reading this book is a revelation for a lot of people. And at the time that I read it way back when, it was a revelation for me because I had never quite been looking at a game in that way before. And the thing is that a lot of the ideas weren't even what I would say are new, right? Because like the idea of fronts and setting a time clock and all that, well, I was already doing those things. I just didn't call them that, but I also didn't frame it that same way and put it into a different kind of game. I was just doing it in my regular, whatever D and D game. Right. So I, I, I just think that it's a good enough game and it's a good enough way to present ideas about how you're playing games that it should at least be read by everyone. And I'll even go so far as to say that its predecessor, which is Dogs in the Vineyard, should also be read, although that book has problematic pieces of its own. But it was sort of the proto-apocalypse world uh, and has some really brilliant things about it that could still to this day be taken to other games and enhance other games um so i'll stop i'll stop talking about apocalypse world now but um uh it 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 definitely deserves a spot on the list even if even if you only read it and never play it it deserves some mention i I definitely think that just seeing that initial implementation of fronts and and clocks and such is really worthwhile it's it's a interesting read um here again i've played about one session (laughs) Uh, and we had such good intentions to continue. Yeah. Yeah. So the last game on my list here 
is um, a Song of Ice and Fire roleplay by uh, Green Ronin. Um, designed, uh, well, I think uh, Rob Schwalb was the design lead. Um, we ran, sorry, I got to play in a uh, reasonably long-term uh, campaign of that where we were playing um, a, a house that was way up near the wall. And um, we had a really good time with that. Mm-hmm. The, the character dynamics were fun. Um, and there are things that I definitely learned from playing that that I could not have learned most other ways. Um, <laughs> I, I will say that uh, there are a lot of uh, great character concepts available. Know what you're getting into if you decide to play a maester as your PC. They are not really protagonists in the novels. They are supporting characters. And so that is it is hard to push away from that in running the game to make them protagonists rather than supporting mm-hmm. characters. Mm-hmm. Um, that That's a an interesting lesson to come across. It's also true of septons and septas. Um, the, the, the novels don't exactly know how to make them matter a lot of the time. And the game is trying to, you know, give you what you see in the novels. So there mm-hmm. you go. Um, that, that that's my experience of it. Yeah. But I love what the system is doing. Uh, the dynamics of combat are are neat, and I am definitely interested in picking up um, some of the uh, sword sword chronicle system that is the Westeros filed off version of um, of that system. Okay. Okay. Also from Green Renine, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So, so my next one, so you'll, you'll notice I have a trend in mine, right? Yeah. I have yet to suggest a D20 game and I will continue that trend. Um, because Savage Worlds uses many multiple different polyhedrals. Um, Apocalypse World uses 2D6, uh, Dogs of Injured 2D6, uh, Trail of Cthulhu is a percentage system. So D100, and I will continue, uh, that trend with Mouse Guard. Okay, yeah. Mouse Guard is an interesting game because it has these um it, not even because of the I mean I just made a big point about the dice. It, it uses d6 uh dice it, but it's a dice pool and then they can explode. Um but that's not what makes it interesting. What makes it interesting is the way that the conditions in the game there's two things. The way that the conditions in the game are applied and can be relieved or resolved. And then uh, the way that you learn or get better at something, because when you make your character, the way to get better is by failing. If you always succeed at everything that you attempt, you never get better at that thing, right? Um, But if you fail, you have to get a certain number of fails better at that thing. And I know that's not the only game that does that, but it it the implementation is so good in Mouse Guard. Um, now I'm talking about Mouse Guard first edition. I have not read second edition at this point, um, but I think that hasn't changed much. Um, the second thing that is, makes it good is the conditions. You can get hungry, tired, irritated, things like that, because of course you're mice, right? But the way that you can resolve those is not just, oh, take a long rest, right? Now, if you're tired, yes, you can resolve it by resting. But if you're irritated or angry at somebody, you actually have to resolve that, like between the characters, <laughs> to make that go away 
right? Um, and it, it's it's a really good implementation of that particular setting. So I've read some of the graphic novels, um, and the the game it just it like speaks that language so well that it forms this really nice cohesive uh, setup. And then the last thing is when you go into combat, it has this really weird and confusing system where um, you can choose one of, I think, four different moves and everybody chooses in secret what they're going to do. And then you reveal them all at the same time. And then based on what actions people did, you look at a matrix basically and determine what the outcome of each interaction is, which was really weird and hard. So no, it's all based on burning wheel, right? Uh, sort of. It's more like Burning Wheel, but understandable. <laughs> it's 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 Burning Wheel light. Yes. Hey, you said it, not me. I'm not a huge fan of Burning Wheel. I respect Burning Wheel. I think Burning Wheel does a lot of interesting things. Um, but there are some things in Burning Wheel that I just did not enjoy at the table. I bounced off that book real hard. <laughs> yeah, it was it was um interesting. Uh, and I, I wasn't, and that's part of why Mouse Guard's on my list, actually, because I read Burning Wheel. Yeah. And I thought, oh, it's interesting. And then I tried to play it. And it just was not like, I just, it, it was, it was, I mean, I, I don't even think I could read the whole thing before I was trying to play it anyway, because it is a real tough read. But um, uh, I think actually Burning Wheel Gold improved on the format and, and, and writing, but, um, but so I thought, oh, mouse guard, you know, it's probably going to be more of the same, but just with cute mice as the protagonists. And so am I going to enjoy it? But the thing is the changes they made are really effective and, you know, the, the good art and the story and the setting does help, but really the system is imminently more playable to me than burning wheel is. Um, because again, Burning Wheel though is a toolbox, right? You're supposed to use the parts of it that you like and that are work for whatever situation is happening in your setting, and then you can ignore the rest. And that'd be great if most of it also could work together if you decided you wanted more of it. Anyway, I don't I don't want to I don't want to rag on a system uh, so much. But yes, Mouse Guard right. is kind of Burning Wheel light, but it is it's Burning Wheel done right. Yeah. I'll put it that way. I, I've been listening to um an actual play of uh, the root RPG, which is okay. mm-hmm. very similar mm-hmm. in yep. its its pitch, mm-hmm. right? Right. Um, if quite different in its mechanics, uh, but like I've I've read uh, Red Wall. I think I mm-hmm. yep. have at least a few of the other novels in that series. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like it's definitely. Uh, a game that is here to deliver that kind of experience uh, of uh, of Redwall and such, and mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. that's uh, uh, that's great if that's what you're looking for. I, I encourage you to, yeah. to check that out. I uh, definitely want to get a copy of uh, Mouse Guard to to read myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the thing with uh, Root and Redwall is that that's a whole sort of ecosystem that has because I've read several of the Redwall books and they're good, um, but there are no humans. Right. Right. It's all anthropomorphic animals. Yeah. And um, and so that's you know, and it's not that there are humans in Mouse Guard. It's that the Mouse Guard setting is a lot more constrained than sure. Than Redwall, sure, uh, sure, sure, 
And so you get a slightly different feel, but yeah, it's the same. It's, it's that same kind of aesthetic that is, if you want to play anthropomorphized animals, some animals are bad and some animals are good. And some creatures that exist in the world are very dangerous, like birds and cats. Right. Um, and some are not right. Then those are the games to play. And, you know, I don't know this, what kind of system root uses, but mouse guard system is really fun. It's really fun. Listening to the, uh, the actual play uh, has not really uh, explained a lot of the system to me, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's not what yeah. I'm there for. Um, so do you have anything else on your list? No, I think that uh, that does it for me for games I have actually experienced mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as opposed to um, games I'm I'm hoping to bring to the table at some point soon. Okay, uh, so my next one also it deviates from the dice rolling mechanic, and that is Dread. Mm, okay. Dread is the game where you use a Jenga tower yep. to... Uh, make a test basically to see if you succeed at something, which means that uh, of course, as more pieces get pulled, cause you know, okay. If you don't know how Jenga works. Okay. Here's how Jenga works. You have <laughs> pieces that are all the same size. They are rectangular pieces of wood and you put three and then you stack three on top of them going in the other direction. Right. And then you stack three on top of those going in the original and then, and you stack it up about nine or 10 or however long high. Right. And you pull a, piece of wood one of the three from a level and you put it on top and so as more pieces get pulled right it's it's a dexterity game it's a party yeah. game right so as more pieces get pulled and put on top it's harder for the next person because of course you're making the bottom part of the tower unstable and you're adding weight to the top of the tower so at some point it is inevitable it will fall over yeah and what dread does is it takes the Jenga tower and it says, okay, instead of rolling dice, instead of pushing rolls, instead of uh, using resources to, to change things, when you do something that could have a large effect on what's happening in game, in the scene, you pull, you make a pull off the tower and you put your wood on the top. And if the tower falls down, you die. Mm-hmm. And so you can make a very heavily tension-filled game out of dread. My problem with it is I, I've only played it once and it it is not a game that really uh, lends itself to a long-term campaign in the way that oh, no. I think of a long-term campaign, right? Right. Um, and even something like Call of Cthulhu or Trail of Cthulhu, where, yeah, you're going to die, right? Or or you're going to go literally clinically insane, right? You will not be in your right mind, so your character basically is done. Mm-hmm. But you can play for months. I mean, you can play a long-form campaign for that for, for years, right? Um, and so... While I love the idea of that of that mechanic of using a Jenga tower because it's just so different and it does notch up, you know, ratchet up the tension because everybody is watching when somebody's making a pull off of that tower. But I can't play that long term. And I am a long term campaign kind of guy. Right. So that's my only caveat. But if you're in for a fun filled, you know, uh one night game filled with horror and at least one person is gonna die. 
if not everybody, then, uh, you know, that's, that's the way to go. If, if you have any confidence whatsoever in your hand-eye coordination and dexterity such that you could even play Jenga in the first place, which actually makes it a not very accessible game for someone who has a disability. So right. that's that's the caveat there. Um, however, just reading it and seeing how everything is framed, again, uh, there, I, I'm also a big proponent of reading things with very different mechanics just to see how that is laid on paper and then playing it once to see how that thing that was on paper now works. And sometimes you end up getting fireworks because things are just like, wow, I did not expect that to go so well. I have the same kind of feeling about uh, Penny for your thoughts or Penny for my thought. I can't remember. I always say it the wrong way. <laughs> well, one thing I always say about Dread is that the Jenga mechanic became a core spellcasting mechanic for wizards in uh, one of the LARPs I'm playing in. Okay. So mm -hmm. I play a lot of Jenga, except that instead of stacking the bricks on top, you use them to draw the the glyph of the spell okay okay interesting and you might have to stack them um horizontally or vertically to draw your glyph okay interesting yeah it's super fun it is very much not for people who mm -hmm. have a tremor in their hands yeah right exactly yeah yeah so penny for my thoughts it is my thoughts not your thoughts uh, is it's an evil hat game written by Paul Tevis, uh, 2008 or 2009. Um, and y y there is no Jenga component. So, but the reason I brought this up is because it's one of those things where you read it and you go, huh? Like, is that really going to work? How's that work? Cause you're basically pushing pennies around, um, because penny for my thoughts. So the idea is in this game, everybody who's in the game is in an asylum with amnesia. And so through through the game and through giving each other pennies and through through different little artifacts that you set up beforehand, um, you end up telling the story of what happened to you that you're you're learning to get your memories back, right? Because you have you're 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 an amnesiac, right? So you don't really remember, but through the game you find the memories, right? Um and so that's a very interesting mechanic, but it's it was like, what the hell am I reading? Like, what is this? But when you play it, it's like brilliant. It's like, nice. if you're with the right people, right? Now, that's kind of a caveat I have for any game, though. If you sit down to play Call of Cthulhu and one of the people you're playing with just does not get horror and doesn't want to go with the whole Cthulhu thing with the eldritch evils and all that, they're probably not going to have a good time or you're not going to have a good time because they're not going to do they're not going to have the behavior that you are expecting from a person at the table. Right. And so that's my caveat with any of this. Anytime you're going to sit down to play the game, you got to get buy-in from everybody. Otherwise you might, you might not have a good time. Yeah. 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 So I have three other games. I just want to mention. Okay. Okay. Um, literally just to mention, cause I mentioned, I mentioned a couple of them yesterday. Um, one of them is gamma world. Um, and uh, it is a D it's the first D20 game that I've mentioned on this list now. Um, and just because I think uh, some of the versions of Gamma World, in this case, I'm speaking specifically of the, it's actually the seventh edition of Gamma World, but it was the one that was produced during fourth edition D&D. &D. And it has some really, really fun mechanics that actually you could just port right on over to fourth edition D&D &D and make your game a lot lighter. Um, the, the way that they do weapons and armor is is fun and easy. 
and and it's it's a fun sort of tactical game, but it's wild and wacky because you could be fighting next to a big you know praying mantis on one side and a plant on the other. Um, yeah. And so that's really fun. Uh, the second one I want to mention is Paranoia. And I probably uh, should have mentioned yeah. this in the setting, right? In the setting episode, but um, just as a as a framework for a a weird, funny, odd future of being run by AI. Yeah. Uh, Paranoia sets up a a sort of game where you can do wacky, crazy stuff because you there are six of you. You have five other clones uh, that could be activated. Right. Right. And so, yeah, I I absolutely love uh, paranoia when run by a GM who can bring mm-hmm. the kind of uh, just completely bonkers energy mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Um, Alpha Complex demands. Yep, um, I have been very fortunate to have that kind of you know, GM as a good friend of mine, uh, and so I've been in some really great paranoia sessions nice uh nothing was okay <laughs> but of course. we had a great time right. and and that's the thing it's not supposed to be okay <laughs> uh, you are you are accusing each other of being traitors you're going to report each other uh and and you're you know yeah so <laughs> i mean the, the thing that was strangest was that we had um almost the whole table functionally playing in zap mode mm-hmm. and one player playing straight and it worked right because uh that that player rabbit was mm-hmm. the straight man for the the humor but mm-hmm. also actually got to where the character wanted to go and succeeded right. because <laughs> all of the characters playing zap were mostly zapping each other mm-hmm. of course yep yep <laughs> so nice. that was a good time nice um, my my one last game that I want to mention is uh, is Cipher System or Numenera, whichever way that you prefer to think of it. And the only reason that I'm suggesting it because it is a D20 system, but it does a couple of things different. The first thing that it does different uh, that's different from other D20 systems is the DM doesn't roll any dice. The GM doesn't roll any dice. Only the players roll dice. So if there is a creature or NPC attacking a a, a player, a PC, um, the player rolls a defense roll. The GM doesn't roll anything. If the player's PC is attacking a creature or NPC, uh, the player rolls the attack roll against a a target number. So the GM doesn't roll anything. Uh, There is no reason for the GM to roll anything task resolution based because the players are rolling all of their task resolutions. Um, So the GM literally rolls no dice. So that's one thing that's different. The second thing that's different is... The way they structured the levels is in tiers of play is very different from a traditional like third edition D&D game. Mm-hmm. Um, but the characters feel as powerful as characters in a third edition game feel. Okay. So if that's up your alley, I'm not a huge third edition person, but you know, mm-hmm. but the real reason why I, I, I think that uh, everybody should at least play it once is if you have a GM that will actually use the ciphers, Ciphers are the whole reason that the the system is called cipher system is because it revolves around this idea of giving resources that are one or limited use items. And they're basically, you could think of them as little magic items that you can use once or maybe twice in some cases, or you can use it until it breaks or explodes. And in that case, you're pushing your luck in a little bit. 
Um, and some of these things have um, effects that you can determine before you use it. And some of these things have effects that you have no idea how long it's going to last or what it's actually going to do. And the because of the, um, you know, because the way the setting is in Numenera, at least, it's meant that you're going to be curious about that and use it. You're not just going to hoard those things and carry them around. Um, partly because there's a mechanic that says when you start getting too many of them, they start activating at weird times and destroying each other uh, because the just the energies aren't aren't mixing, which is really just a mechanical way of trying to put a narrative reason why you shouldn't be carrying those things around. Sure. Um, but the whole reason I'm suggesting it is really that the ciphers themselves, because that's something that actually if you – just want to take a dip into some other game and then go back to your D&D game or your other standard D20 game, that's something that maybe you would choose to port over because it's a really interesting way to give expendable resources that have a reason to not be hoarded and might make your game just a little more fantastic or just a little more fun or or whatever. Um, and so I, I particularly like ciphers. I think they're really interesting. And once you learn how to do them and how they're structured, you could actually just make your own, you know, make up your own and, and use them in your game and give them to your PCs. So, yeah, um, the, the 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 setting of Numenera and its mm-hmm. uh, extremely distant future mm-hmm. uh, definitely is one that has has interested me. Um, I'm a little bit harder of a sell as a general statement mm-hmm. sure. on um, players roll the dice. GM never touches the dice just, just because like, I, I like rolling dice. Yeah. So here, and that's something actually in, in like in apocalypse world too, right. In, in, in a lot of powered by the apocalypse games, the GM doesn't roll. The GM doesn't roll. Um, yeah. And, and and I have a hard time with that too. And in fact, Numenera, I, I I ran several sessions of Numenera, and I love the setting. The conceits of the setting are really up my alley. Um, but yeah, I had and I thought, oh, the no dice rolling thing would not be a big deal. But in a D twenty game, it is a big deal to me. And I kind of had a problem with that. It's funny because I don't have a problem with it in Apocalypse World, right? Um, but f- I guess just because that's just in my brain, a different game, right? Sure. So I'm not expecting to roll dice, but in Numenera, it's just a D20 game. It's just a variety of D20. I mean, just, right? I don't, I don't mean that it's to, to, to diminish it in any way, but it's a D20 game. And I already have set in my brain in a D20 game, right? The GM rolls dice. <laughs> so it's hard to break that. I hate, I hate to say it, but it's hard to break that. Yeah. So... Uh, anything else you want to say for this episode? I don't think so. I mean, I, I think I think my take-home message is this. It's not that I think everybody should run out and play these 25 games that Brandis and I just talked about, but I do think there's something to be said for experiencing a different game because it's the, for the same reason that I say that every DM of D&D should be a player as well at least some of the time because you experience things and shift your point of view to such a different state when you're in one of those different positions that it helps you I don't want empathize is probably the wrong word but I'm going to use it anyway if when you're playing as a player it helps you empathize with what's going on and the struggles of the DM right 
And then when you, if you've been a DM, if you've never been a DM, it's really hard to understand what the DM is going through and how much information they're juggling and everything that they're trying to work through to just make this scene work, right? To just respond to the players in an appropriate manner. It's not just, oh yeah, let me answer your question. It's okay, I got to think of what are the repercussions of all of this. Now I'm gilding the lily a little bit, but you understand what I'm saying. Because of that, it's good for every player to try to DM or GM at least once. But at the same time, if you're a DM too much or a GM too much, you lose sight of what it's like to be on the other side of the screen as well. And you lose sight of the unknowing bit and the frustrations and the parts of the mechanics that kind of rub you slightly the wrong way that the DM doesn't actually have to deal with, that sort of thing. And so it's a good reminder to do both of those. And for that same reason, it's good to play other games or at least to read them. And even if you did like a solo, you know, try to solo a game, right? In other words, you don't, you can't get a group of players together, but you're going to run through character creation and maybe go through a scene to try to see how that system actually works because that makes your brain change and grow in different ways. And even if you don't even think you are, you're going to apply those things that you learn and think about to every other game that you're also dealing with. And I feel like that's a good thing to do. Uh, I definitely share the idea that you need to run and play broadly. Mm -hmm. Um, Just, boy, I wish someone would solve scheduling. Right. And also money, right? Like I'm not, I'm not expecting people to go out and spend thousands of dollars on new games that they might never play. Right. So, you know, but just one, just pick one. Not me staring at my shelf, looking at thousands of no, dollars I'm of not, games not, I haven't I'm played. Not, right, right. But right now I'm speaking to newer players, right? Now, somebody like you or I who've been playing for 30 or 40 years, right? Like, yeah, of course, we have maybe an extensive collection that we've built up over time. But, um, you know, somebody who who only has ever played 5th edition D&D, right, or who's only played 4th and 5th edition, right, they might not have experience with other games at all. And just get a couple of different books. Right. That's the other thing about this. A lot of these other games we mentioned, it's one book, not five or not a core book and then a monster guide. And then what some of them are, don't get me wrong, but most of them are like one thing. Yeah. Yep. So I think unless you have any final thoughts that might bring us to the end of this episode. No, I'm, I'm, I think I'm good. We should, uh, we should wrap this one. The 11th day. Yeah. 11th day. Where can people find you on the internet? Uh, well, uh, you can find me for now on Twitter at Brenda Stoddard. And then I'm on Mastodon um, at Brenda Stoddard at dice.camp. Uh, I also write for tribality.com. And my personal blog is brendastoddard.com. Finally, if you'd like to support my writing, uh, my Patreon is Brenda Stoddard. How about you, Sam? You can find me on rpgmusings.com. You can also find me. I'm on Twitter at DM Samuel. And then I'm also on Mastodon at DM Samuel at dice.camp. And uh, I am also on the Tome Show Discord. Have a good holiday, folks. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.